thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight, we're continuing our study of the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 19. Um, before I go into this chapter, I'd like to read to you a couple of things that I gleaned from EWTN news website, which are note, noteworthy and are related to the study of the book of Revelation. Um, this, uh, this took place yesterday. At midday, before praying the Angelus, with pilgrims gathered in St. Peter's Square, the Pope commented on today's reading from the Gospel, a biblical vision of history in which the words of Jesus invite the disciples not to be afraid but to face difficulties, misunderstandings, and even persecutions with trust, persevering in their faith in Him. In St. Luke's text, Christ tells His disciples, when you hear of wars and, ins and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. The Pope explained, Mindful of this warning, the church has since the beginning scrutinized the signs of the times <clears throat> and put the faithful on their guard against recurring expressions of messi messianism, which from time to time arise to announce the imminent end of the world. In reality, history has to follow its course, and this also involves human dramas and natural disasters. Over history, a plan of salvation is developed which Christ already fulfilled in his incarnation, death, and resurrection. The church continues to announce this mystery, mainly that over history a plan is developed, which Christ has completely fulfilled. But now it is being developed through history. Through preaching, celebration uh, of the sacraments, and the witness of charity. And he adds... Let us have no fear for the future, even when it appears dark and gloomy, because the God of Jesus Christ, who adopted history to open it to its transcendent fulfillment, is its Alpha and Omega, its beginning and end. So all of history is wrapped in God's providential love. Right? He guarantees that each small, each small but genuine act of love contains all the meaning of the universe, and that those who do not hesitate to lose their lives for Him find them fully. What does that mean? Each small act of love contains all the meaning of the universe. Every little act of love we do, especially at Mass, right, contains the entire meaning of history. Why is that important? Because He explains the role of consecrated people. Why do we have monasteries where, where consecrated people live? 
consecrated people, meaning especially those who are living in cloistered monasteries, who do not seem to you know, participate in the social life of society and therefore do not seem to give anything to society. What is their role? Why are they cloistered and praying? Apart from this explanation of the book of Revelation, the role of cloistered people make no sense. Now, I'm not talking about active orders. I'm talking about cloistered orders, contemplative. Why? Because as I've told you already, history is made in liturgy through our sacrifices, through our love of God. And what do those people do all day long? Precisely that. Some, a monk or a nun who lives in a cloistered contemplative order has decided to offer his or her life as a sacrifice for us. They are constantly interceding on our behalf through the celebration of the liturgy. Which is what I've told you earlier, that when we Catholics celebrate Mass appropriately, when we really truly center our lives around Mass, we change the world. First by changing our parish, then all the surroundings. That's why bishops really love to have contemplative orders in their diocese. Because they know the power of intercession and they know what these prayers can do as is explained to us in the book of Revelation, particularly today as we can see it in chapter 19. So he says, The monastery as a spiritual oasis shows today's world what is the most important, indeed the only decisive factor. The only decisive factor. That there exists a definitive reason which makes life worthwhile, and that is God, and that is God and His ineffable love. Faith working through charity is the true antidote against a nihilist mentality, which in our time is extending its influence even more widely in the world. Nihilism is essentially denial of life. And the only way to, to counteract that is faith working through charity. Faith. And apart from Christ, there is no faith. Okay. Uh, another interesting little tidbit, which I thought was very uh, illuminating. Uh, in the United Nations, there has been a debate over uh, uh, the uh, uh, death penalty. And they wanted to protect life. So as part of this, some countries had put forth a statement that said, well, if you're talking about protecting life, we should protect all of life, including the life of the unborn. This is the first time ever that this happens in the United Nations. What are the countries sponsoring this? Which country are pushing for that? Egypt, Bahrain, Iran, Libya, Kuwait, Mauritania, and Sudan. Sponsored the Right to Life Amendments. Their first amendment calling for a new operative paragraph to be included in the draft text read urges member states to take all necessary measures to protect the lives of unborn children. Now, the knee-jerk reaction is to think, wow, these Muslims are great, look at us. That's the wrong way of looking at it. Again, this is not biblically centered. The proper way to look at it is, wow, look how mass is powerful. Somebody has been praying. Action is resulting. Not the way we expect it, but it's resulting. Do you understand how it works? Nothing happens apart from the fount of life. Because none of us is good. That's what Christ said. 
Why do you call me good? Only God is good. So neither Muslim, nor Christian, nor Buddhist, nor whomever we are, have goodness in us. We're all fallen children of Adam and Eve. Only he, through his cross, has goodness in him. Somebody has been praying for this. He answers. That's the answer to Mass. It's not the way we expect it. That, he didn't say, I'm going to answer according to your agenda or your plan. He didn't say that, did he now? Okay, but he answers. And answers he does. And in the answer, there is a lesson for us. There is an examination of conscience. Where are we? Okay, but it is God speaking. It is Jesus Christ. It's not just Muslims. Do you understand? This is how we understand history. Christ is speaking to us. It's a dialogue. Last example. And this is significant. There's, this is a tectonic shift. I've never seen this before. In, in the United States, Cardinal O'Malley rebukes Democrats on abortion. Voting for pro-abortion candidates borders on scandal. The U.S. bishops have issued their strongest condemnation yet of pro-abortion views with their faithful citizenship document issued yesterday, which was three, four days ago. Colonel Sean O'Malley of Boston also has added his disapproval of pro-abortion candidates in comments to the Boston Globe, saying that the support of Catholics for these politicians borders on scandal. And he says, I mean, basically he's saying, uh, voice the sentiment that the bishop's latest citizenship document includes, namely, that despite his differences with the Republican Party over immigration policy, capital punishment, economic issues, and the war in Iraq, he views abortion as the most important moral issue facing policymakers. Noting that many Catholics traditionally support Democrats, O'Malley reamed uh, the Dem Dem Democratic Party for being extremely insensitive to the church's position on the gospel of life in particular and on other moral issues. Uh, when the Carolyn was asked about the many voters who support Democrats who are in favor of abortion, O'Malley said, I think that at times it borders on scandal as far as I'm concerned. The vast majority of U.S. bishops seem to agree with Cardinal O'Malley since the full 98% of them approved the faithful citizenship document yesterday. So this time around, they are going to be stating something a little bit clearer. Last time when we had elections, we talked about this, and we clearly ind indicated that as a Catholic, you cannot say all issues are equal, and I, my favorite issue is foreign policy, and therefore I'm going to foot vote for a Democratic candidate because his, his foreign policy is better than that of the Republicans. Not that the, the foreign policy of the Republicans is one to be uh, condoned either. But the point is, there are different degrees of evil. Abortion being higher than war. And I know that people from the Middle East is really hard because you're in the middle of it. We are in the middle of it, right? But it doesn't take away from the fact that you are not people of the Middle East first. You're Catholics. And you're Lasting home is going to be heaven. Right? So that is also very significant um, as, as far as change goes. So when you read the news, learn, train your mind not to act as a pagan mind. Because we, tend, we have tendency to read the news completely separate from the cross. There's no relationship. And so, of course, the devil finds it a perfect occasion to heap upon us doubt, anxiety, uncertainties, thoughts of despair, etc., etc. Why? Because we've separated ourselves from Christ. We're saying these news have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. 
Christ is set aside. He's in the, in the, in the church. But those things out there have nothing to do with him. He's not aware of them, or he's not interested, or he doesn't care. Or essentially, it's a, it's a what I call practical micro-atheism. You know, being an atheist in little things. Why? Because we are not vigilant and we're not consistently training our mind to think and to act practically, in practice, as Catholics. That's what the gift of the book of Revelation is for us, is this constant training and reminder of who we are and how we ought to act. Any questions so far? Very good. Let us then begin chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the mighty voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice crying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed uh, to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty thunder peals, crying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. He who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name inscribed which no one knows but himself. He is clad in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, followed him on white horses. From his mouth issues a sharp sword with which to smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On on his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly in mid-heaven, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who sits upon the horse and against his army. And, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had worked the signs by which he deceived those who had re- received the mark of the beast and those who wor- worshipped the image. These two were thrown alive in a lake of fire that burns with brimstone. 
And the rest were slain by the sword of him who sits upon the, the horse, the sword that issues from his mouth, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. If nothing else, this passage tells us that we Catholics tend to be at variance with Scripture. We are not a glorious people. We are little people. We are the excuse me people, I'm Catholic. We don't reign. We don't think we should reign. We are democratic in the church. In fact, many of us are trying to turn the church into a democratic institution. Anything, I mean, if you read this chapter, and this is Scripture, and Scripture cannot be nullified, and Scripture is inerrant, and Scripture is the voice of the Holy Spirit, this is saying something altogether different now, isn't it? There is a note of triumphalism with which we may be uncomfortable. First, Notice that this is the only place in all of the New Testament, this may come as a surprise, this is the only passage of the entire New Testament where the word hallelujah is used. It is used nowhere else. Only here. Four times. We're going to understand why in context. What are they chanting hallelujah over? Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. Are they saying hallelujah to our God who is merciful? Are they extolling His mercy? No. Hallelujah is connected with His judgment. When do they give glory to God? What is hallelujah? Glory to God. Literally. Hallel, glory, Yah, which is a short for Yahweh, God. Glory to God, right? When are they giving glory to God? Connection with His judgment. Now, listen to the words. He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Why are they crying, glory be to God? Because He has avenged the blood of His servants. Many Catholics will be very queasy with these words. They will not use this as a prayer. They don't feel comfortable. Right? We have a psychological problem. The God we worship is not the God of Scripture. Do you understand? We take Jesus Christ and we bring Him down and put Him in a little box that fits our views of what God should be like. And it's a view which we're very comfortable and we stand in front of this God that we just made and we tell Him we love Him. In fact, we're just loving ourselves. We're loving our own sense of justice, our own sense of holiness, our own sense of mercy. We're loving our views of the world. We're making ourselves gods using Christ. No different. So next time you feel uncomfortable around Scripture, it is time to change. Not Scripture and not God, but you. Know where the change has to happen. In your heart. 
Right? The words of Scripture shall not pass away. This world will pass away, but the words of Scripture will not. I'm not making those words up. I'm going to read them to you again. Because really, we don't want to hear them. These are saints and angels. And they are rejoicing over what? Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God, for His judgments are true and just. He has, he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. They have absolutely no qualm in stating those facts. One reason why we have a problem with this is because we don't understand forgiveness. When we say, forgive them their trespasses, what do we mean? What do we mean when we say, forgive them their trespasses? Not to punish them. That's what we have in mind. Right? Correct? Not at all. It has nothing to do with this. It has nothing to do with it. Okay, Forgive them, meaning, Lord, I do not hold this against them. I give away my right to hold this against them. That's what it means. It's not, we're not asking God to change when we say forgive them their trespasses as we forgive. We're telling God we changed. We're saying, God, in According to justice, I can tell you, hold this against them. But I'm saying don't. And God will say, well done, my son. Well done, my daughter. I will not. You're with me so far? However, God will say, I will still hold it against them because of my name. Because of what I had done to my justice. They're not off the hook. You're off the hook. That's the difference. You're saying, Lord, if it is possible for them to be saved, let them be saved. I want, to, I want them to be saved. But not over your justice, Lord. That's key. I would still prefer that they be damned to hell, provided your justice is maintained. That's a strong statement, isn't it? Why? Because we don't want God's justice. We don't love God's justice. We don't really care about God's justice. He died because God is just. The reason why Jesus Christ died was not because God is merciful. He died because God is just. He atoned for our sins. I mean, think about that. If He did not spare His only Son so that His justice be maintained, if His Son died so that His justice be maintained, don't you think God's justice is important? Don't you think God's justice is precious? It has the blood of Christ all over it. Do you understand? And so because we are what I call mushy merciful, right? we become ineffectual in our prayer. Our prayer doesn't have power and strength with it. Can't do that. Our prayer should be just. Lord, let them be let those who are persecuting your people be
be converted. But if they are not going to be converted, I pray that you remove them. That's, a, that's an authentic prayer. This is a prayer in line with God's will for all of us. You pray if somebody is persecuting your family and is going after your family, you pray for their conversion. But if not going to be converted, let them be removed. Wouldn't that be right? Wouldn't that be just? Wouldn't that be a realistic prayer? Yeah, it would be. But somehow, because we live in the world of guilt, guilt has been inscribed in our heads. You Catholics, you did that and the other. You colonized the world. You took away native culture. You did this, you did that. We bought into it, and now our prayer is sort of the excuse me prayer. And the only thing we feel comfortable with is mercy because then we're not bothering anybody. Or so we think. We're actually bothering somebody a lot. He's on the cross. Once more they cried, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! I assent, I believe, Hallelujah! I am happy about it. Okay? And from the throne came a voice crying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty thunder peals crying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. What makes possible the coming of the bride? What makes possible the wedding of the Lamb? God's justice. Without God's justice, the harlot could not be removed and the bride could not come. You understand? So that's why they're rejoicing because they see the fruit of God's justice, which is mercy in his church. That's why justice and mercy can never be separated. That's the prayer they're praying. And tonight you need to go back home, read the text, and ask yourself this simple question. Can I pray that prayer? St. John gave us this text. What, what, what do you think? It re it's repeated four times. It's repeated four times because when you want to get your kid to do something, you've got to repeat it four times. Put on your shoes. I said put on your shoes. Put on your shoes. Where are your shoes? What do you mean you don't know where your shoes are? Go get your shoes and put them on, right? No different here. He knows it's hard. It's hard for us to accept that prayer. But it's repeated four times. All right. Let's look at it from a different angle. It is, of course, the liturgy. You see it, right? It is antiphonal. There are different participants who are praying. You have first the great multitude who's, who cries hallelujah. Followed by that, they, 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 they say twice, hallelujah, hallelujah. Then the 24 elders, which are the priests, prostrate themselves before the throne of God. Amen, hallelujah. And then again the great multitude praise God one more time. Now, there is this parenthetical notice about what the angel says. I'm going to come back to it. But what happens 
after all of this is said, God, one more time, takes action. Why? Because we see heaven opened, and the one on the white horse comes, and the rest follows. Here's an interesting thing. Before the white horse comes, did God take action against Babylon, the great? Has he burned Babylon with fire? Remember from our last study. Has anything happened so far? Nothing. Nothing has happened. Right? Yet they are praying as if it has happened. It's a consistent, consistent pattern because this is how liturgy is. Things happen in the liturgy first and then in history. History is what? The material application or the material implementation of liturgy. That's it. That's what history is. All those events that we look at separately are the fruits of liturgy. Liturgy makes history. The power is right here. It is in our hands as Catholics. We can truly change the history of mankind. And we've done it multiple times throughout the years of the, of the church. All right, so the first part, we have this antiphonal hymn that is praising God. The second part is when we see the action, right? And in between, there is this conversation between the angel and St. John. Now, obviously there are similarities between what we're reading here and the announcements that preceded the, uh, the trumpets, um, compare chapter 11, verse 15 through 19, to what we see here. In 11.15, you had loud voices in heaven. Here we have loud voices in the great multitude. Right? In 11.15, 17, we, there is an affirmation, God will reign forever and ever. Thou hast taken thy great power and didst reign. Here in 19.1 and 6, Hallelujah, salvation and power and glory belong to our God. Hallelujah, for the Lord of God, our God, the Almighty reigns. In 11.16, the 24 elders fell on their faces and worshipped God. In 19.4, the 24 elders fell down and worshipped God. In 11.18, the time came for the dead to be vindicated and the time to give their reward to thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints. And here, in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. His judgments are true and righteous. He has avenged the blood of his servants, starting with 18.24, a couple of verses before the beginning of the chapter. And 11.18 Thy servants, those who fear thy name, the small and the great. In 19.5, all you his servants, who, you, who fear him, the small and the great. In 11.19, there were lightnings, noise, noises thundering. In 19.6, the voice of a great multitude uh, uh, as a sound of many waters and as a sound of mighty peals of thunder. There's this parallelism in the liturgy that takes place. What happened at the end of chapter 11 when we begin chapter 12? Do you remember? What happened after all this proclamation? Something very important happened. Heavens were open, like here, and what, what did we see? The tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, and the woman. Now, heaven is open, and one, seated on a horse, comes out. Right? Mary represents what? The church. What do you think this, the, the one sitting on the horse and all those who follow him, they represent who? The church. No different. This is the church going to make war. 
This is the church going to make war. We feel really queasy with these concepts, don't we now? Church making war, what do you mean? Why? Because our concept, again, is so materialistic. We only think of weapons and war and bombs. and But this is one way you make war. This is the worst way you make war. Right? That is not how the church makes war. How do we make war in a church? Yeah, what in particular? The liturgy. The liturgy. This is not about holding a sword and... and you know, it's like somebody gives you a... Uh, I don't know, it gives you the ultimate weapon for the whole universe and you go for a small knife. Why are, we make, why are we celebrating Mass one more time? Why are we coming to the liturgy? Because we're told that we have to? Is that it? We come to the liturgy to make war. We come to the liturgy to celebrate a wedding. We come to the, to the liturgy for the creation of the world. We come to the liturgy because we want to change the world out there. That's what we come to the liturgy for. And that's why the world is in such a mess, because we're not doing what we're supposed to do. We Catholics. Why should we make war? Who's our enemy? The Word, the flesh, and the devil. Let's talk a bit about the devil. Let's talk a bit about the devil. Okay. Um, the devil is pure evil. Because the devil is an is, is a, um, intellectual being, he's not rational, he's intellectual, who had made a decision long time ago to completely, absolutely separate himself from God. Completely and absolutely separate himself from God. Okay? Can we humans... Can we human, why we live here, do that? Why we live on this earth? Can we do that? We don't have that power. Because our nature is not angelic, it is human. Therefore, in a very fundamental way, no human, while alive, is pure evil. What is the corollary to this? We do not know what pure evil is. In fact, it's a mystery to us. It is beyond our nature to understand what pure evil is. We can't fully understand it or even fathom what pure evil is. Just, it's impossible for us to do that. We have some approximation, but we still those are not pure evil. No, but, but the, the point is that we can't fully understand pure evil. So do you negotiate with pure evil? Do you sit down and open up a conversation to see if you can come up to terms? So what do you do? What's your option? Pray. Uh, no, no, no. Frame it differently. Pray is a tool. What are, you, what are you doing? You're waging a war. It's full-blown battle. It's battle for your life. Right? Right? If you don't understand your life as a battle, you're in danger. Because you think it's safe out there. If you live your life thinking, oh, I'm cool, I'm fine. You're not watching and guarding and praying, you're in danger. That's why he loves to make sure that no one believes he exists. Then he can get us as flies. 
If you don't think he exists, why should we fight him? He doesn't exist. Right? Two corollaries to what I just said to you. Number one, there's nothing you can do to make the devil hate you more. You know, sometimes he plays these games where he kind of tries to convince you that if you really pray and take your life seriously and do this and that, now he's going to really come after you. You know what? He's coming after you right now as much as he can. Because he's pure evil. There's no level or degrees. He hates you to the fullest possible extent. So that's a consolation. Right? There's nothing you can do that can make him hate you more. Now can you? All right. Number one. Number two. The sacraments are so powerful. The sacraments are so powerful that it is said that even if, in fact, not just the sacraments, the sacramentals, right? But, but let's talk about holy water. It is said that if somehow somebody could sneak one, one drop of holy water in hell, one drop of holy water in hell, hell would disappear. This is how powerful that stuff is. Do you have holy water at home? Good. If you don't, get some. So, am I saying this to you to, so you can be afraid? Well, in one sense, yeah, I'd like you to be a little bit afraid if you think that the devil is just this kind of, you know, little thing in diaper walking around and uh, there's nothing to fear, right? I'd like you to be afraid. Be very afraid. But on the flip side, if you understand the war you're waging, be not afraid. Okay? The word and the flesh. Well, actually, the devil, the flesh, and the world. The second person you have to fear more than anybody else is who? Yourself. Yeah, not, not fear in the filial sense. Be wary of. Not trust. Shouldn't trust. Who? Yourself. Don't be buddy-buddy with yourself. You'd be in trouble. Why? Because you have a fallen nature. Okay? So any notion of goodness that you may have about yourself, any notion of, oh, I'm doing well. I'm advancing on the way of sanctity. I am better now than I was yesterday. I can chart my progress. You're in trouble. Big time. Big time. Those are temptations. You throw them out. And you pray to God to give you a true view of yourself according to His wisdom so that you know the areas you have to work on. And always remember the word of St. Therese of Lisieux. Between us and God is the same as between the zero and infinity. And the greatest among us has not left the rim of the zero. St. Therese of Lisieux. Okay? That's the second battle you're waging. And it is fierce. It is fierce. That's how Christ spoke. If your hand is tempting you, cut it off. You know, now, this was metaphorically, right? You don't just mutilate yourself. But the notion is, he's trying to highlight the violence of the battle. Right? Heaven is taken by violence, he said. Because it is a battle against yourself. Anytime you're thinking of yourself, I'm good. You're like the frog being cooked slowly. 
Anytime you think, I know, you're in trouble. Anytime you refuse to be taught by somebody, you're in big trouble. Anytime you show signs of impatience when someone's talking to you and you don't like the conversation, you're in trouble. Christ is talking to you. You're telling Christ, I don't want you to talk to me like this. I just want you to talk to me the way I want you to talk to me. And on and on and on. And then finally, the world. Yeah, you have to be careful. That's a battle. That's a full-blown battle. That's what we're talking about. That's how we wage battle. All right. Now, let me tell you something about this antiphonal hymn. It is divided in five distinct parts with four hallelujahs, right? The word itself recalls the Hallel Psalms. 113 through 118. We don't know the Psalms too much. Let me tell you a little bit about the structure of the Psalms. You know there are 150 Psalms total. They are divided in actually five books. The Psalter, the book of Psalms, is divided into five books. The first book, Psalm 1 through 41, really are Psalms of David. And it ends with the Psalm that is believed that David said on his deathbed. So it is about King David. Psalm, in the second book, from Psalms 42 to 72, it is about Solomon. And it leads all the way up to the height of his glory. This is how the second book is structured. The third book is really about the exile. Why? Because that's after Solomon has gone, you know, some years later, everybody's in exile. And those become, the, the, the third book is the book of exile from 73 through 89. And then we suddenly hear Moses. Moses comes back to the fore. Why? Because the Israelites, meditating on their state, recognize suddenly that they are again wandering. They're in exile. They thought that the kingdom given to them under David was it. Well, now they're realizing it was not it. It was a lollipop. Because they were so impatient, wanting a little trinket, God gave them a little trinket. And then took it away from them because they got so attached to the little trinket, they made, it, they made the trinket their God. Right? So he sent them to the nations. So now they're in the nations, they're in exile, and they're realizing, uh-oh, what's going on, Lord? So Moses now is back into the fort. And then, interestingly enough, in, in the fourth book, um, we see... Yeah, and it actually continues. I'm sorry. The third book is really about the defeat of Israel. The fourth book is about the exile, when they are actually shipped away from the land. And then in the fifth book, when you start with Psalm 107, there is now Messianic Psalms that celebrate the deliverance of Israel and return of the Davidic kingdom, but purified this time. And so Psalms 108 through 110 talk about the Messiah. In 108 and 109, in 108 the Messiah appears, 109 was where he suffers, and 110 is where he actually overcomes. So 108, 109, and 110 have always been associated with the Messiah. His coming, his incarnation, 
his suffering and his resurrection. And oftentimes, Catholics are very perturbed by the words of Jesus on the Christ, Ili Ili Lama Sabachthani. And they don't realize that these are the beginning words of Psalm 109. So he's essentially calling the attention to the fulfillment of the Messianic Psalms 108, 109, and 110. He's basically saying what those Psalms have called forth, I am now fulfilling. It's not Jesus doubting whether God is with him or not. right? Sort of the modern misinterpretation. All right. Now that the Messiah's victory is established, Israel explodes into the praise of the Hallel. Hallelujah. And those are Psalms 111 through 118. And in particular, 113 through 118 are known as the Hallel Psalms. And when are they sung in the liturgical year of Israel? Passover, Tabernacle. The feast that has become for us the institution of the Eucharist and the feast that has become for us Pentecost. That's when those songs of glory, the Hallel, are sung. Four of them. Four songs with, who are saying hallelujah. How many hallelujahs do we have in this chapter? Four. That's why it has been seen as these four Hallel, the call, are really the call to the four Psalms within the context of Passover and of Tabernacles. This is the liturgy of the Mass. Okay. It is interesting, actually, that when you start reading this a little bit more carefully, you will see that the first call, the first hallelujah, is echoing Psalm 104, which is part of the fifth book, the book, essentially, that celebrates the restoration of Israel. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let, be wicked, let wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Hallelujah. Right? It is, it is singing the, the, the greatness of God because he basically has moved sinners out of the picture. Um, and then um, we also hear, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, Thine is the dominion, O Lord, and Thou dost exalt Thyself as head over all. All right, this, is a, this is taken from one of the psalms that David has written, and you hear the echo in the Our Father, which Jesus taught us. Right? That was echoing that particular psalm about the restoration of the kingdom. So when we say, when we pray the Our Father, we're really praying for the restoration of the kingdom of God. Right? Now, in Luke chapter 21, verse 22 through 24, Jesus says the following. Um, for these days are the time of punishment or the time of vengeance. Speaking about what is happening now in the, Eucharist, in, the, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is saying in the Gospel of St. Luke, for these are the days of punishment or vengeance when all the scriptures are fulfilled. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days, for a terrible calamity will come upon the earth and a wrathful judgment upon this people. This people, not China, not the end of the world, this people. Hmm? They will fall by the edge of the sword and be taken as captives to all the Gentiles and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
What does it mean the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled? It means that the history of salvation has run its course. The times of the Gentiles. This is the times of the Gentiles when the Gentiles have joined with the people of God to become one nation, one people of God. And when the times is fulfilled, Jerusalem is restored. That's why any talk of restoration of the temple is, shall we say, premature. Now, in a second movement, they are rejoicing because the smoke of her goes up forever and ever. This is not to be taken physically. So, Because if you look around, you won't see any smoke coming up forever or ever from Jerusalem. right? But it is a reference back to Sodom, which God destroyed. And he said the smoke of her will go up forever and ever. What does that mean? It means it's a whole burnt offering. It's a whole holocaust. It means that it will not be able to be reinstituted. It will not be repaired. It is a full-blown holocaust. That's what this means. Right? And then in the third movement, we see the 24 elders who are uh, uh, worshiping God. And you notice that they are actually falling down and using their bodies. And this is why it's important for us to follow the gestures. And all of them are doing the same gesture. It's one gesture across all of them. And you don't see two of them saying to each other, hey, why don't we hold hands? They don't invent liturgy right there on the spot. Okay. And then finally, the fourth movement, we're now told whose voice pronounces the fourth section. We're not told. It's coming from the altar. So the best explanation is, effectively, it's the ministering priest. Incidentally, sometimes you may wonder why in the Latin liturgy, when you have multiple priests, they're all standing around the altar during the Eucharistic liturgy. You know? Like you got six or seven priests over there. Well, one is enough. What do we have seven of them over there? Because of right here, the elders. Okay? It's the unity of the church. All of them celebrating with one voice. That's why. All right. Now, there's another interesting um, element here that I want to point out to you. This Thanksgiving, prayer of Thanksgiving, was called the Toda. It was the Thanksgiving offering, or Toda. Toda was the, Jew, the, the Hebrew word for it. The Greek word for it is what? Eucharisto. Okay. What was really interesting about that particular offering uh, for the Jews is that it had three. It consisted of three steps. When a Jew was under duress, when he was persecuted, or had a, you know something that is hitting him really hard, he goes to God and he makes a deal. He says, "Lord, if you take this away from me, I will make an offering. I will make a sacrifice." That's the first part of the Torah. The second motion is when the the, the the pain or the suffering or the difficulty is taken away. The third is when the Jew goes to the temple, makes an offering, whatever he promised to offer, he offers, and then he celebrates with his friends over a cup of wine, and he recalls what has happened, what God did for him. And the interesting part is that it's the only time where 
lay folks in Israel were allowed to eat consecrated bread. The only time when they were allowed to receive bread, which has been consecrated for the altar, take it back with them and eat it as part of the celebration. Bread and wine. As part of the Toda offering. David's psalms are filled with this particular offering, so much so that they are actually more numerous than any other offerings that, we could, that, that is possibly done. Not only that, but in Psalm 9, something really interesting happens to the Todah. The Thanksgiving celebration is done before, before the actual act of taking away the pain has happened. Thanksgiving happens before the realization of it, which is what I've been constantly telling you all along about what the liturgy is. What is then the liturgy? It is the fulfillment of the Todah. It is a Todah. We come here, first act, we present to God our petitions. Problem is that we present to God our petitions in sort of a, you know, excuse me, Lord, sorry to bug you, um, sort of way. Right? St. Augustine used to say that in his church, when they came time to to say the holy, 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 Right? He feared that the, 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 the glass would break from the strength of the voices. We don't celebrate. We don't celebrate. We endure Mass. Okay. So what happens here? What is going on? There is this transition now that has begun from the old covenant to the new. The bride is coming, pure, robed with linen. Linen is always a priestly dress. Priests are robed with linen. So this is the new priestly order that is instituted by Christ that is now effectively taking shape across history. He has already done it in the institution of the Eucharist. But now, what has been done and confirmed in the liturgy is taking shape in history by removing the particular, the, the principal obstacle, which is the temple of Jerusalem and the old liturgy. This had to go away, the sacrifice had to cease for Christians to be completely separated from it, and then they can then really truly establish the Eucharistic meal as it was meant to, to be. Right? And how does Christ do it? Well, one thing I want to tell you, if you notice, it is, we are told that they are dressed in pure white linen, for it is, what? Those of you who are still awake. Verse 8, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So anytime you have a conversation with a friend of yours, a, a Protestant friend, whom I tell you all I need is faith, take them here. They have that scripture too. Okay? For the fine linen is the righteous deeds, deeds of the saints. So you're not saved by faith alone. You're saved by grace through faith and work. Okay? I thought I should point that out to you because it is so evident here. All right. We talked then about the first part. Now we see then Christ coming um, on, 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 on the horse and from his mouth issues this double-edged sword. What, is, what does that mean? 
It effectively means that the word of Christ, when it is said, it is done. It's a word of creation. Okay? It is, it, was, it is a word that will not be cut, that will not be stopped, it will not be silenced. Christ is in control of history. That is His kingdom. He had purchased this kingdom through His blood. He had purchased all of us through His blood. And therefore, His word will not be cut down. His word is truth. His word is faithfulness. And what He said on the cross, what He said during the Last Supper, He accomplishes throughout history. This is what the Pope was alluding to earlier. Okay? That is the foundation of our hope. That is the foundation of our faith. This is what allows us to persevere even when the appearances of things look really gloomy. Be not afraid. Here is what this particular author, who is actually a Protestant, says about the Eucharist. This is a Protestant talking. The Eucharist is the center of Christian worship. The Eucharist is what we are commanded to do when we come together on the Lord's Day. Everything else is secondary. This is not to suggest that the secondary things are unimportant. They are important. Right? But... The most, the, the, basically he's saying that the essential thing is the, the Eucharist. It is a tragedy, he adds, that so many churches in our day neglect the Lord's Supper, observing it only on rare occasions. Some so-called churches have even abandoned communion altogether. Okay. What we must realize is that the official worship service of the church on the Lord's Day is not merely a Bible study or some informal get-together of like-minded souls. To the contrary, it is the formal wedding feast of the bride with her bridegroom. Every Mass is this wedding feast. Every Mass is this wedding feast. And we are invited to this wedding feast. Not only are we invited, we are participants. Why? Because after this wedding feast is consummated, after the bride has been revealed, what happens next? What is the fruit of marriage? And this is probably the only marriage where all the children are present at the wedding. It's us. We're being adopted. This is what's going on at Mass. It lasts a lifetime. You know, they say adoption lasts a lifetime these days. Costs a lot of money. If you've tried it lately, it's a horrendous process. But heavenly adoption lasts a lifetime. He says, with, um, with great insight, commenting on the dictum of the Eucharist is at the center of our life. Now he's quoting somebody. Hold on a second. Yeah, he's quoting somebody. I don't know who. But anyhow, the, this particular author says, commenting on the dictum of the Eucharist is at the center of our life, and all of life flows out of the central liturgy. The shape of the Eucharistic liturgy, therefore, gives shape to the rest of life. The daily liturgy we follow as we pursue our calling to exercise dominion over the earth, the rite of life is patterned after the central ritual of communion, which is itself patterned after the liturgy of creation set forth in Genesis. Genesis is Eucharistic. I don't have time to go into this right now, but it is Eucharistic in the way Genesis occurs, which always... You know, it's kind of really interesting if somebody look at it literally and tell me that the world is 5,000 years old. Anyhow, that's a different subject. 
All right. Now, let's talk about this event where St. John falls and worships that angel. Right? So, this happens in... This is the parenthesis that I have now left, left, uh, left uh, alone up to this moment. It was granted, and the angel said to me, right, right. So now, verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, blessed are those who are invited Invited. Not everybody is invited. Get that? Not everybody is invited. And those who are invited are blessed. And these are true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. What's going on here? Uh, the common misinterpretation is to think that John is committing idolatry. Okay? Oh, well, he's just worshiping an angel. Well, okay. Hold on. Let's think. Excuse me. Let's think this thing through. This is St. John. This is an apostle. This is the one who had Mary with him. I mean, you can't get better than that. Right? So, it's not somebody who's just going to fall prey to idolatry. That's not what's going on here. If we said that we miss entirely the point, which is very important for us to understand. What happens here is, if I can find my notes, there's one particular word that I want to key on. So, first of all, if St. John has committed idolatry, why is it that the, the angel doesn't quote the first commandment? Right? John. What is the first commandment? Pardon? Right. Why don't you just tell him that? Why does him, you must not do that? Worship God. I am a fellow servant. Why go into all this explanation? If all that he committed was idolatry. Quote the first commandment, right? Just worship God. So it's like St. John doesn't know that, right? Okay. So... Why does he do that? And he adds also, he launches into a brief explanation about the nature of prophecy. I mean, what's going on here? Well, first of all, we need, we need to, look about, to look at the word worship in the Greek. Okay. The word worship in the Greek means the custom of prostrating oneself before a person and kissing his feet, the hem of his garment, the ground. That's what worship means. And this is the problem the Protestants have with us when you see us, you know, kneeling before Mary or a saint. They say, you worship. No, you, you, they have the same issue. All right? That's what worship means. The custom of kneeling before someone, kissing his feet, the garment. That's what word worship really means. We have a very narrow understanding of it because we, we, to us, it means only adore. Right? How do you call a judge in England, even today? His worship. His worship. Does this mean that all Brits are adoring the, the, the judge? No. That's the title the judge has because you're paying respect to the position of judge. That's all. So, therefore, what is St. John doing when he fell at his feet? He's not adoring the angel. 
What is he doing? Yes, respecting, but he's saying something else now, isn't he? He's saying, you are what? In relationship to me. Greater than I am. That's what's going on. St. John is acting like all, like the people of the Old Testament. All the people of the Old Testament, without exception, either feared the angels or knelt or showed them this kind of respect. He's doing what has been done up to this point. Which would have made sense in the Old Covenant. Because in the Old Covenant, angels and human were separate. Why? Because human did not have access to the Holy of Holies. The gate of heaven is closed. We're not sanctified. We're not children of God. We have not been adopted, have we? It requires for the bride to come, for us to be invited at the wedding feast, so that we become children of God. Now, when we're children of God, what happens? What is our relationship to the angels? Who are they? Our brothers. And that's what the angel is telling him. You must not do that. This is not a denial of the you know, veneration we give angels or saints. Because we, we, are, we are tempted to make another mistake. We think, well, well then, if St. John right, does not have to kneel before this angel, then we don't have to kneel before this angel either. As I said earlier, this is not anybody. Okay? This is St. John. How many of us can say, the Blessed Virgin Mary lives in my house? She's my mom. I mean, we're supposed to say that, but not the same way as he did. Now, did he? Do we, right? So, still, we have to keep some distance here. I'm not convinced that the words of the angel apply to all of us, simply because we are in the house of God. I I don't know if it does in the same way. Because this is St. John. He's an apostle. He's a priest. He is the one who received our lady. There's so much going on with him and his title and his glory, right? Compared to us. But nonetheless, there is a substantial difference between humans under the new, human under the new, test, the, the new covenant and those under the old. And our relationship with the angels. There are older brothers in the faith. They're the ones who can teach us. They're more intelligent than we are. Naturally speaking, their capacity are much greater than ours. However, spiritually or Eucharistically or liturgically, we are equal. We are in the same place. That is a fundamental shift. And accusing St. John of idolatry misses the point. That covenantally, the gates of heaven are open. We are all invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb, whereas before it was only angels. None of us could get in. It took Christ, it took God to assume our nature and through our nature to suffer on the cross and open the gates of heaven for us so that we can join the family Again, that's what's going on. So in this chapter, we go back up to heaven to see the liturgy unfold, the continuation of it, the fruits of the liturgy, the prayers of the saints, their sacrifices, the life they lived here, and the blood they offered and they shed is now bearing fruit. Nothing is lost to those who love Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as a failed life. There's no such thing as a miserable life. There's no such thing as a life that has no sense for those who love Jesus Christ. Because in the cross, in the power of the cross, every act of mercy, 
every act of love, every offering we do, every small suffering that we give to him out of love, each and every single one of those actions transform the universe through the power of the Mass that he instituted for us and for the salvation of the world. God bless you. We have time for some questions? Yes. Okay, thank you. So the, the, the question, if I were to sum it up, would say that does mercy come before justice? That's one aspect of the question. The second aspect is, well, does this mean that we should not invoke God's mercy? Should we only invoke his justice? Does this mean that God's justice annuls his mercy? Does this mean that God automatically punishes people as soon as they do a fault? Have I summed up the concern? Yes. Yep. All right. Let's let's address first the the question about mercy coming back, coming before uh, before um, judge, uh, before justice. Mercy comes before justice in the way God deals with us, but not in His nature. First, God is just; then He's merciful. If God were not to be just, He cannot be merciful. Right? Of course, we have to invoke God's mercy. There's no doubt about it. Of course, God is going to extend His mercy as much as He can to us. And we ought to do the same. No doubt about that either. Am I clear? Yeah. Everything I say needs to be put into context. Were we to live in a Jansenist society, I would be talking mostly about mercy. Because these guys invoke God's justice so much that they would even deny communion to people once a year. What context do we live in today? We live in a context where the only thing we talk about, I'm generalizing a little bit, but that's the main theme is God's mercy. And the problem with it is that we tend to torque God and then turn it into this God that really fits our need. All of us really want to hear mercy, especially when it's about us. But we don't want to hear about justice. When was the last time you heard a sermon that talks about God's justice? When was the last time you heard a sermon that even said, Folks, you can go to hell? Well, that's an exception. Right? You know what I'm talking about. We don't live in a world where people are fed the truth, all of the truth. And what I'm trying to point out in this specific chapter is that they're not rejoicing over God's mercy here. That we really rejoicing over his justice. When was the last time the Catholics rejoiced over God's justice? We don't do that. My point is not therefore to say God is not merciful. God is very merciful. My point is not that to say that God doesn't love us and he will extend his acts of mercy as much as he can. Of course he will, but not to the extent, not at the expense of his justice. Right. I'm the fruit of that collage. Right? And many of the people here, and especially the young generation, are faced with that. And you know, that's why they're getting into witch. They are so hungry that they are willing to go to witchcraft rather than just stick with collage. Right? The problem is that we are not really teaching them about God's mercy. Why? You, because you, can't, you and I cannot truly understand or fathom or appreciate God's mercy if we don't first appreciate and understand His justice. It's, permiss- per- per- it's, it's essentially being permissive, allowing people to do whatever they want. That's what they mean by mercy. That's not what he means by mercy. No. Right? We need to be more judgmental, which is the justice. We need to really rejoice when God 
is doing what God is about to do. Which is when he whacks the world upside down, because the world needs a big whacking. This is telling us, don't mop around. Rejoice. God is about to do something wonderful. And if we don't have the capacity to rejoice in God's justice, we can be led to despair. That's the fundamental message here. So, yes, we need the mercy of God, absolutely, connected to His justice, so that we can rejoice whether He is merciful or just. Make sense? All right. Any other question? Yes. You need to look at the fruit of the action, right? But definitely, when you see God acting, and God is acting throughout all of history, everywhere, there are times where when a specific obstacle is preventing the church from growing, is removed by an act of war or by a violent act, it's a time to rejoice. Thank you, Lord. Right? That's key. Rejoicing now doesn't mean we just jump up and down and throw a party. Rejoicing means we take hope. We are strengthened. We are empowered. We see God's acting. God's protecting. That's wonderful. There's no other way. Absolutely. That's the key way to rejoice is the liturgy. You see, so if we are not really liturgically centered, we're going to have a hard time with any of that stuff. Okay? Yes. What I meant is that there is this sort of a current that assumes the Genesis is telling us that the world is 5,000 years old. Okay? This is called creationism. And I have a hard time with this because it neglects so much of Genesis to be able to come up to that conclusion. I don't think it's scientifically sound or based on anything that is um, true to the Word of God or science. And when we hit the book of Genesis... I'll go into detail into all of this. All right? Yes. Exactly. Um, in, in a specific instance of the, of the flood, God gave them mercy first when he said the, the, the age of man will not be more than 120. This did not mean that no one can be older than 120. He's basically saying, when I give them 120 years before I execute my judgment. That's mercy. When a judgment came and a flood took place, it was justice. And there was no point of moping around. They received their due. That's how we look at it. The flip side of this, you know, one problem we have is with death. When was the last time you heard a sermon about death? Where the priest stood up and said, you're all going to die. Are you ready? You're going to face four things. Personal judgment, heaven, hell, or purgatory. Where are you going? When people die these days because of this mistaken notion of mercy, what, have you heard of somebody say, okay, this person died. I'm sorry to tell you folks, he's going to hell. Ever heard that? Of course we shouldn't. God, Thank God. I'm not saying we should. I'm exaggerating. But have you ever heard of any priest who would say to people during the celebration of the funeral, folks, the way to heaven is narrow and tough. There are very few people who make it straight to heaven. Our hope is that this person is in purgatory. Let's pray for him. No. Why? Because we want to be merciful. So we tell the family, he's in a better place. Uh, no, I didn't. But, uh, you know, he's going to be in a better place. He's a priest that talks. Yeah, Father Karapi is, uh, is a priest that is on a wanted list. No wonder. But 
So, so the, yeah, don't make, I'm not making it up. I mean, he has a bodyguard. Okay, but my point is, everybody these days is going to heaven. Actually, going to heaven is easier than going to Harvard. Ask people. It's much easier. Why? Because God is merciful. doesn't matter what we do. He's just going to take us up. Everybody's good. That's the issue that I have, is that we are actually feeding people a lie about who God is. We can't keep on doing it. We need to teach them what mercy really means in the context of God's justice. And yeah, Christ said it's tough. You know, 70% of everything we learn about hell comes from Christ, not the Old Testament. Merciful Christ. That's, that's the reality of the faith that we live in. It's completely watered down, and so everybody's going to heaven when they die. God, have mercy on us. Any other question? Why don't we finish with a word of prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.